how are you? And welcome to Mav Geeks. It is series four and episode nine today. My name is Ginny Carlin and this is Jamie Gordon. And we are going completely old school today. We are going back to the day of the Harrier. We've got a complete doozy for you. We are speaking to the fantastic Chris Burwell, former Harrier pilot and member of that very special club of people who left the aircraft a little bit sooner than anybody expected. So, Ginny, how has it been the other side of the small pond? Well, Jamie, I have to say today is very cold. (laughs) (laughs) I've had my pom-pom hat on today because it is so cold. But with the cold weather and the clear nights brings one thing, and that is the Aurora Borealis. Wow, that is just a fantastic spectacle. And I think you've been watching Twitter and I've been watching it as well. Uh, Pilots who often describe their place of work as the best office in the world, but they certainly have the best view when it comes to the Aurora Borealis. Well, absolutely, and I'm... I say I'm very lucky. I've not actually seen it yet because I'm always the one who's either asleep when it comes up on the the WhatsApp group or whatever. Uh, but it's it's not easy to spot here, but it's easier to spot here. And I think it's been out twice already since I've been here, and I've only been here a few weeks. Um, and uh, my coworker Melissa, she went out on the uh, on the prairie the other night with her kids and watched it. And she said we could hear the coyotes howling uh, and she took some photos. It's just absolutely amazing. And then somebody was coming back from the ice hockey the other night because, yes, Jamie, I have been to an ice hockey match. I have turned into a <laughs> Canadian. And I, I couldn't see anything, you know, as we were travelling back. And then somebody who'd been there put up on uh, one of the social media platforms, oh, you know, we call her Lady Aurora. Lady Aurora's been out again tonight and, you know, you could just see the faint strain. So it's almost like it's always there in the background, but it's just, it's like quite mysterious when you see it and stuff. But yeah, these pilots, especially over Canada, it seems, just get the best light show imaginable. I cannot wait to see it. Oh, that's brilliant. Now then, let's have a word with Chris Burwell, who um, we had a really nice long chat with, didn't we? (laughs) We did. And I remember speaking to Chris Burwell at Duxford a little while ago and he was signing his book, signing copies of his book. And I went over and I said, excuse me, sir, would you like to be part of our podcast? And he was like, I'd love to be so nice, such a nice guy. And it was so nice to speak to him. And we ought to plug the book, obviously. It's called Nine Lives, The Compelling Memoir of a Cold War Harrier Pilot, which did come along later on in his career, but we actually started right back at the very beginning. And of course, he's a member of that very, very special club where people get to leave the aircraft a lot sooner than they expect to. So absolutely stoked to be able to introduce to you Chris Burwell. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Mav Geeks today. My pleasure. Now, Chris, let's go right back to the beginning. Uh, I always think that some people are just absolutely born to fly. You know, it's in their blood as soon as they're born. And for you, I know that you joined the Air Force 18 Gosh, two weeks after your 18th birthday. Yes. Um, nine, sorry, I, I'm going to give the, the date out if that's all right. 1969. Correct. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very what, old, yes. What, I was what one. A time, oh, blimey, yeah. were you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll not say how old I was. What, what a time to be alive. I mean, what a time to be 18 years old, joining the Air Force, uh, looking to go onto fast jets. That must have been some time for you. It, yeah, it was, it was it was a very interesting time. Um, 
as I say in my book, I was I was um, I was growing up not that long after the Second World War, so there was a lot of memory of what had happened during the Second World War. And I think, like a lot of my generation, I was very interested in aviation. I think that still applies today. I think very, people are very interested in aeroplanes, aviation, and space, of course, these days. So it was an exciting time. And the possibility of going off and joining the Air Force was was hugely exciting, I must admit. You're absolutely right, Jenny. Of course, your initial training would have been on the chipmunk, I gather. Well, interestingly enough, when I joined the Air Force, they'd actually taken the chipmunks away, and I started on jets. But having said that, I did a flying scholarship paid for by the Royal Air Force. Before I joined the Air Force, I did a flying scholarship on chipmunks up at Perth, Schoon Airfield up in Scotland. So I did 30 hours flying up there. So I did get to fly the chipmunk, but it was actually, at that stage, the civilian chipmunk that I flew. I flew the uh, chipmunk in service as well later on. But I did 30 hours on the chipmunk with uh, air service training, a civilian organisation up at Perth Schoon in the summer of 1969 and then I joined the Air Force late September 69 but I didn't actually start flying training for about another 18 months and that was straight onto jets onto Jet Provost the Mark III uh, was the initial training aircraft that we flew then. Gosh I always think that the Jet Provost looks like a beautiful aircraft it looks almost space age for the time how, how did it handle for you? Uh, it was. It's a very, um, very good trainer. Actually, it's a very docile aircraft. The interesting thing, what, what I found very interesting, was the chipmunk was quite a handful on the ground <laughs> because it's got a tailwheel configuration, which means that it's directionally unstable for various reasons. It's all quite technical, which I won't go into unless anybody particularly wants me to. But it's directionally unstable on takeoff and landing. And also, when you're taxiing it on the ground, you can't see where you're going because the nose of the aircraft is up in front of you because you sort of set back. And it's only when you go off down the runway and you raise the tail of the aircraft that you can actually see where you're going ahead of the aircraft. So it, the chipmunk had some interesting handling characteristics, and I could see why the military used it as an initial trainer mm-hmm. because it was a very good way of weeding people out because you had to have a reasonable amount of coordination to fly the chipmunk and to fly it well. And when you went on to the Jet Provost, or when I went on to the Jet Provost, you suddenly went, well, actually, this aircraft has got no vices at all. On takeoff and landing, <laughs> it's very docile. And, uh, okay, it's, a, it's quite a bit faster than a chipmunk, but it was actually very easy to fly compared with the chipmunk. So it, it was quite bizarre, really, because the elementary trainer was quite difficult to fly in some ways. And when you went on to the basic trainer, the Jet Provost, it was actually comparatively quite simple to fly. But of course, we then went on and did lots of more difficult things, particularly things like instrument flying, uh, which take a lot of coordination, a lot of concentration. And that's where people could run into trouble. But the basic handling of the jet products was pretty straightforward. And and it it was a delight to fly. And I flew the Mark III, Mark IV, and then later on the Mark V as well, which was a pressurised aircraft with a bit more power. The three was comparatively underpowered. The Mark IV and the Mark V had an uprated engine, which made it a bit faster and a bit more fun to fly, really. We'll probably come back to Jet Provosts in a sec, but I just wanted to talk to you about flying the Nat, which you did at Valley. <laughs> I yes. haven't met anybody who's flown a Nat, so wow. I'm intrigued. I, I've heard, I've heard it was really good. It's just because I'm so old, you see. (laughs) (laughs) The Nat was a fantastic aircraft to fly. Again, interestingly, it was another aircraft which had some interesting vices. Obviously, it was quite a lot faster than Jet Provost, so when you got into it, well, you didn't... (laughs) 
as I say in my book, people used to say about the NAT quite uh, amusingly, you didn't strap into a NAT, you pulled it on because it was such a small aircraft. <laughs> you sort of hopped into it and you sort of, you did almost feel like you're strapping this aircraft onto your backside almost. It was quite a nippy aircraft. Well, it was a very nippy aircraft actually. And it was a delight to fly. One of the big differences when you got out of a jet provost and went onto the NAT was that the NAT had powered flying controls. So they were hydraulically powered. Whereas the jet provost, you were pushing and pulling against cables and you're basically inputting direct into the airflow. When you got onto the net, because of the higher speed of the aircraft, and that applies to airliners, of course, and things like that these days, you actually had a hydraulic system. So that when you move the controls, you were moving hydraulic jacks. And it was the hydraulic jacks that pushed the controls around into the airflow. And the thing about that is that those controls are very sensitive. And it was always quite funny. You could always see somebody when they were doing their first takeoff in the that because as they got airborne, the aircraft would porpoise as it climbed away from the runway and it would just be nodding up and down as it climbed away. It only took <laughs> a matter of a minute or so before you got the hang of it and you realised that you just had to minimise your control movements because the aircraft was that responsive that it would just, you know, just a little pressure and the aircraft would respond. You very, very quickly got used to it. But that was one of the interesting things about the NAT. As I say, it was a lot faster. The jet probably should be flying around at 180 to 240 knots. The NAT you'd be flying at 360, 400 knots, something like that. So a lot faster. It also had problems, well, not problems, but an interesting uh, characteristic on the runway because it's a very narrow tracked undercarriage. So if you were in a crosswind, the aircraft would try and drag you off the side of the runway. So you had to be a little bit careful landing in a crosswind in the NAT, but a great little aircraft to fly. We did about 70 hours flying on the NAT at Valley before we then got streamed off to do whatever after that. Now, one of the things, Chris, that myself and Jamie were speaking about before we spoke to you was the fact that you were at Cranwall at RF Valley and then you became a flying instructor mm. uh, before you actually went onto the Harrier Force. Was that something that you particularly enjoyed or could the powers that be just really see that you excelled at that? Most courses going through Valley, they would select one or possibly two people to come back into the system as flying instructors. Though I say it myself, it tended to be the people towards the top end of the course. But having said that, I didn't come top of the course. A very good friend of mine, Paul Hopkins, came top of the course along with a guy called Bob Mason. And they both got postings to the Harrier. Bob didn't get to the Harrier for various reasons. Paul did. But I came third on the course and I'd always been quite interested in flying instruction. I'd enjoyed going through flying training. I'd always enjoyed flying with my flying instructors. Uh, I found them really um, personable and good instructors by and large. And I thought, well, if I could aspire to doing that, that would be a great way to start out in life. So I actually made it known to my instructor that I was quite interested in becoming a flying instructor. And when the postings came out, yes, it's in the hands of the powers that be. They decide where you're best suited. I think they were quite happy that I'd done well enough on the course, certainly, to merit going off to be a flying instructor. And I was effectively a volunteer. I would like to have been a flying instructor on the NAT, but by the time I had been selected for that, I think there were two guys on my instructor's course and they'd already been selected for the NAT. So I finished up on the Jet Provost instead. And I went to Linton on News to do my first tour as an instructor for two and a half years up there. If I could just 
my anorak for a minute. When I was um, <laughs> when I was a teenager learning to fly gliders, the elementary aircraft was the T twenty one, the barge, which had mm. a side by side configuration, mm. as does the jet provost. Yes, um, yeah. I found that quite reassuring as a student to have your instructor right next door to you, so you could yes. look at them. Yes. Was, is that kind of relationship same in the, in the Jet Provost? Was it a reassuring configuration to be in? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think, as you will know from flying yourself, that um, a lot of learning to fly is about the confidence to do what you're being asked to do. And having somebody who is obviously very capable sitting next to you inspires that confidence in you. It's it, you know for basic flying training. I think side by side is very fit for purpose. It's, it's a very good way to learn. I can give you one little example of that. When I was instructing people in close formation flying, it was I always saw it as a good confidence booster that once you'd got them doing the basics safely, I would keep my hands well away from the controls and I would make it quite clear to them that I was nowhere near the controls. So all the pressure was on them to get it right. And in the Jet Provost, if the student's flying in the left-hand seat, which he was, and you're flying on the left-hand side of the lead aircraft, the student students looking across you and he can see I used to put my hands up on the combing to make it quite clear I am nowhere near the controls it's all up to you sunshine and that, that, that I always felt was a great way of inspiring confidence and that applied across the board once you got into the NAT you could fly an aeroplane you flew the jet provost you could do lots of things in a jet provost you could fly it at night you could fly it on instruments you could fly it in close formation you could fly it at low level at 250 feet when you got in a NAT it was the fighter lead-in stream you were on your own, so you were out in the front of the net. There was a guy behind you, but he wasn't sitting there holding your hand or anything like that. You just got on with it. So, Chris, if we just look forward a little bit to your time on the Harrier Force, almost everybody who I've spoken to who's flown the Harrier at some point has got a tale to tell of how the aircraft didn't behave as well <laughs> as they'd expected. <laughs> in fact, a couple of people have said, I spent my whole time on the Harrier where it tried to kill me, basically. Mm. <laughs> Was it the same mm. for you? Well, certainly looking at the early generation of Harriers, the first Harriers I flew were the GR3, well, the T4 and the GR3. Before that, the GR1 had been in service, and then the T2, and then I came in with the GR3. Now, the GR1, GR3, the difference between those was that basically the GR3 had an uprated engine, so you had more power, which was a good thing because it gave you more vertical performance. But the early generation of Harriers, the GR1, GR3, if we just talk single-seaters, was fairly rudimentary and it had a very weak auto-stabilisation system when you were doing hovering and transitioning from the hover into wingborne flight and vice versa. When you got to the GR5 and the 7 and the 9, that was the Harrier 2, the uprated version, which had a much more powerful auto-stabilisation system. And the problem with the auto-stabilisation system in the GR1 and the GR3 was that if you didn't keep on top of what was going on when you were hovering and transitioning, you could lose control of the aircraft. And it did catch a number of people out. People did die. And it was just something you had to be incredibly well aware of. And when they brought the aircraft into service, they didn't have the two-seater, they just had the GR1. And of course, the test pilots had flown it, they developed it from Kestrel, and the GR1 was brought out. And then there was a Harrier conversion team, the four guys, that actually brought it into service and converted the early Harrier pilots, all without a simulator, all without a two-seater. 
and they filmed all the takeoffs and landings so that they could debrief them afterwards. And that was called the horror film because they put that together afterwards and they created this horror film, which was all the things that could go wrong. Well, not all the things, but they recorded a lot of mishaps and accidents that happened to people. And they didn't show you this film until you'd done all the basic conversion, the types of takeoffs and landings, because they're basically five or six ways of taking off and landing in the aircraft. You didn't get to see the horror film until you'd done that training. And there's a very good reason for that. And that was that it scared you. Um, mm. because you could see what could go wrong. So you really didn't want to preload people with conception. They're going to lose control of the aircraft and everything. And the really sort of shocking thing about the horror film was it, it finished with a fatality where a, a guy lost control in an accelerating transition. So he's going from the hover into wingborne flight. He lost control. The aircraft developed too much side slip. It rolled and he ejected too late and ejected into the ground, basically. Now, oh. when you watch that, that makes you walk away and think, I've got to watch this aircraft because this aircraft needs looking up, you know, I need to mm. look after myself because this aircraft will bite me if I don't get it right. Mm. And that was that was the real problem with the early mark of aircraft. When you got to the GR5 onwards, the auto-stabilisation system was very powerful and it would largely keep you out of that corner where you could finish up running into big trouble and potentially losing control out of the aircraft. So, yes, you know, Harrier pilots, certainly ones who flew it in the early days, um, were very well aware of it. And they would say, yes, it was an aircraft that you had to stay on top of and it, and it could kill you if you didn't keep on top of it. And am I right in thinking you had the opportunity to fly helicopters as part of your Harrier training? Yeah, there was. We, we... Which makes perfect sense in a way. Well, yes, it does, um, because you've got to sort of get in this mindset of slowing down and stopping and then landing. Because if, if you're just a fixed-wing pilot, which we all were going onto the Harrier, you know, you think, well, if I slow down, I'm going to fall out of the sky because the aircraft's going to stall. But, of course, helicopters don't do that. So it was psychological that you got into the mind frame of the fact that you can slow down hover and then land vertically and also you can take off vertically and then accelerate away into what we would call wing-borne flight in the Harrier. Do you know it's really funny Chris because I remember about 25 years ago being at uh, Farnborough Air Show and the Harrier being there and it was the days of the air show where basically you were just stood behind a barrier <laughs> right next to the <laughs> runway um, yeah. and uh, the Harrier did a couple of uh, low-level passes, uh, came in slowed right down, kind of turned to face everybody behind the barrier and then just went from side to side. It was yeah. menacing. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it still gives me goosebumps just even thinking about it. It was amazing. Just went from side to side. Um, and then, you, as you say again, like in, into wingborne flight, it was yes. just the crowd were just captivated. Yeah. But it made me think a couple of things. First of all, how much fuel that must use, but also... Um, how much skill it must take to do the hover? Was that something that you found? How, just how difficult was it to keep it, to sort of do those, not just those air show uh, like tricks and treats that, that wow the crowd, but yeah. the everyday hovering. Mm -hmm. How difficult was that? It's actually not very difficult, as I was saying oh. earlier. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> as a, as a, uh, yeah, it, people would think, oh, it must be incredibly difficult. Um, it's, it's, it wasn't actually that difficult. It was more, as I was saying earlier, about having the confidence that you could do it. And, and that's one of the big things. 
in fact, if I can just set the scene, when you learnt to fly the Harrier, uh, when I went through the training, and this was a training system that had been devised um, right at the beginning, about six, six years before I went onto the aircraft, you did two duels, the instructor in the back, obviously, uh, and then after that, you did a solo. And that was a sort of conventional takeoff and a conventional sort of landing, what we call the slow landing, so it wasn't purely conventional. But that was your first three trips. Your next trip was doing hovering with an instructor in the two-seater. And because of the weight of the two-seater and the fuel that you could take, you would only get three what we call press-ups. So you'd get airborne up into the hover, back down again, and you'd do that three times. You'd run out of fuel, taxi back in. Airborne time, probably about seven or eight minutes, and that was your dual hovering. So your fifth trip in the aircraft was solo hovering. Right. So you went out and you did three press-ups, as I say, up into the hover, back down again, on your own. So your fifth trip in the aircraft, you're hovering on your own. And it's not that difficult, to be honest. It's, as I say, it's more a matter of confidence. But of course, the Harrier, just, you know, an iconic aircraft, an iconic when you think about the Falklands as well. But you were there after the conflict. Is that right, Chris? Yes, I, I didn't go down till after the event. It was one squadron back in UK that did the reinforcement, um, backing up the Sea Harriers down there. So the UK squadron went down there. But by that time, I was based out in Germany. And I was at Goodersloe on three squadron. And we did loan, I think, about four pilots from our squadron to one squadron for that uh, deployment to the Falklands. I wasn't one of them. I was out there as a flight commander. I, I was in Germany on the squadron helping train people up to go to the Falklands. And so I didn't get down there till the following year. So it was only in early 83 that I actually went down to the Falklands for the first time. And I did a four-month detachment, sorry, a three-month detachment that time. And then I was back later the next year for a four-month detachment. So I spent seven months down in the Falklands altogether, but only after the fighting had finished, yes. Chris, you said you mentioned that, that you were detached from Germany. Um, for me, that's another um, iconic <laughs> site as the Harriers out in the field yeah. uh, on the plains of Germany. Mm. I just want to throw you a stat that um, three days ago, an Egyptian solo pilot had to eject using a Martin Baker seat. That mm. takes um, the total to 7,691 lives saved. Mm. You are number 3,079. Tell us oh, about God. that. <laughs> yeah. And you've got the tie pin as well, I, I imagine. I've got, got, got the tie, I've got the <laughs> caterpillar pin. And yeah, yeah. I was actually based in UK at the time on loan. I was an instructor on the conversion unit at Wittering, teaching people to fly the Harrier, which wasn't a job I particularly wanted to do. I wanted to be on the front line, but I finished up as an instructor for three years. So I volunteered to go out for a tactical evaluation exercise out in Germany, which was the whole Harrier force out in the field, as you say, operating out in the um, Senolaga ranges. And so I was on loan to three squadron. I'd actually been out the year before on loan to four squadron, but I went out in 79 on loan to three squadron for a two week exercise. So it was a, a week's training out in the field, followed by the second week was the evaluation exercise. And I was operating as a pair. I had a number two guy called Les Evans, very good friend of mine, as my number two. And we were doing our third sortie, our third mission of the morning uh, during the tactical evaluation phase. 
And we were flying around operating with a forward air controller being guided into a target for a first run attack when there was a quite a marked thump from behind me, which is where the engine sits, obviously, in the Harrier, right behind where you are. It's just quite a pronounced thump through the airframe. I thought, hmm, that doesn't sound good. And, you know, even if you have bird strike, you don't feel it. I thought, I don't know what that is at all. And so I thought, right, let's just pull up and just have a look and see what's going on. So I, I pulled up, everything seemed to be all right. The engine was working okay. I looked around the cockpit for any indications that something was wrong. No indications at all. So I said, said to Les on the radio, I said, I think you better come and have a look at the airframe just, just in case you can see anything. So he came alongside and he had a look on one side, went underneath me, came up the other side. And just as he was saying, it looks perfectly all right to me. At that very precise moment, the engine failed completely. And I lost, lost all thrust from the engine. The engine went into a deep rumble and obviously the airspeed started decaying straight away. So of course you have to lower the nose to maintain gliding speed. And so at that point I was straight into right engine failure. The engine failure drill in the Harrier was very straightforward. So I just shut the engine down, went through the relight procedure to get the engine going again in flight. The engine did relight, but it wouldn't produce any thrust. So I went through the whole process again. I didn't have an awful lot of time because I was obviously quite low. Absolutely nothing from the engine apart from deep rumbling, but no thrust. So I thought, right, it's time to leave. So I just made a quick call on the radio and said, ejecting, and pulled the handle, and that was it. I was out of there. And uh, all happens incredibly quickly. There's a great big thump up the backside, straight out of the aircraft. Within a second, you're separating from your seat, parachutes deploying, and you're just suspended above the ground, a few hundred feet up, floating gently in the breeze. And that was it. I came down in a field in northern Germany. I managed to sprain my ankle quite badly on the landing because I was drifting sideways and I went over on my ankle. And apart from that, I felt all right. But it was only afterwards that all these German people arrived and started looking at me and they were all very concerned. <laughs> I realised I had blood all over my face oh, no. because the um, canopy in the Harrier, the canopy didn't detach from the aircraft. It blew apart. It had a miniature detonating cord, a lead cord, that fired to shatter the canopy. So the first thing that happened when you pull the handle is the canopy shattered straight away and the seat went up through the hole. But that detonating cord is fired off and it turns the lead into molten lead and that had come down and splattered my face and I got cuts from the detonating cord in my face, which is where the blood had come from. And I think my face was stinging a bit, but I didn't realise that I got cuts all over my face and I had blood pouring there. Well, not pouring, but I had blood on my cheeks. And the Germans were all very concerned. I was hobbling around as well, so I probably looked like a bit of a wreck. But, you know, literally within a few minutes, one of our RAF helicopters from Goodersloe arrived at Puma, spookily enough being flown by a guy who'd been an instructor at Linton on Ooze with me some years previously, a guy called John Day, who went on to be Commander-in-Chief Strike Commander. And he arrived in his helicopter. I jumped in the back, got whisked off down to uh, Goodersloe and then on to hospital to have my ankle looked at. That was that. I bet the admin's rubbish after that happening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Chris, you ended your RAF career looking after people as the boss of RAF Scampton and your flying days for the RAF finished at the age of 47. But you you then moved on to fly, again, with a military context. But... um, flying a Falcon 20 
Tell yes. us a bit about what that operation was about and what it was like flying a private jet. It was, yeah, interesting uh, departure because, yes, I went into aerial work with a company called Cobham. And Cobham was a huge company. It's been taken out by the Americans now. But at the time I was working for Cobham, there was a major operation or a major part of Cobham was based down at Bournemouth flying Falcon 20s. And that had been set up originally post the Falklands War when uh, a number of the Royal Naval ships were attacked by Exocet missiles launched by the Argentinians. And the Navy realised that they needed to up their training. And so they needed some simulation that gave them good training to try and negate that threat moving forward. And so Cobham was engaged to provide that training using Falcons and the Falcons were bought in by the company and modified, heavily modified, including putting hard points on the wings of these Falcon 20s so that uh, they could provide jamming and uh, simulated threat training. So that all started back in the sort of mid-90s down at Bournemouth. And then the RAF realised that there was quite a good asset here that they could tap into. So an offshoot of the Bournemouth operation was created up at Teesside Airport, uh, which became Durham Tees Valley. And I went to work there in 1999, again, flying these Falcon 20s. But up at Teesside, we were concentrating more on the RAF side of the contract. We did do some work with the Navy, but predominantly we were working with the Royal Air Force and NATO Air Forces. And we were flying a lot out in the North Sea, but overland in the UK as well. We'd also fly all around Europe, sometimes out into North America and out into the Middle East as well. So for the Royal Air Force, we were providing jamming for airborne radars, jamming for ground radars, uh, communications jamming, uh, threat simulation. And we'd also take part in their war games as well. So if they're having major exercises, for instance, they'd do some quite big exercises out of bloopers or lossy mouth places like that. We'd go up there and we'd be part of the assets taking part in those exercises. So typically they could be like, 50 or more aircraft out there, we might have a two, three or four Falcons taking part in those exercises as part of one side of the operation embedded in their package. So we could provide simulated threats. So we were assets that could be shot down in inverted commas, but while we were there as enemy assets or whatever it was, we could also be providing jamming of radars or jamming of communications as well. So it was, again, a very interesting operation to be involved in. Your book is called Nine Lives. So I guess we're getting to the point in this conversation where you, what was the purpose of the book? Was it to reflect back on, on what's been a fantastic career or did you have anything you wanted to get out of writing the book? Well, I didn't write it for the money, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent more going around air shows signing the book for people than, than I'm ever going to get from the royalties, I'll tell you. Um, why did I write it? I wrote it. Well, I cover this in the, the start of the book. I was at the War Cemetery at Maddingley near Cambridge some years ago, and I finished up talking to an aviation anorak there lovely guy you know we just got chatting and you know of course it came out I was a pilot and all this sort of thing and I told him what I'd been flying and all that sort of thing and he said you shrite all down I said well yeah but I mean I haven't done anything amazing you know I've just been a fast jet pilot on Harry's for a few years and gone off and done this that and the other and he went yeah yeah but people haven't written about this stuff and I think he was talking more about the cold war stuff because obviously 
post-Afghanistan and Iraq, people have written a lot about that. Um, but he was talking, I suppose, to an extent about the Cold War stuff, which, yeah, people have written some of it, but perhaps not that much. So he said, you should write it all down because people would be interested in reading about it. I thought, oh, well, I took that one away. And then when I got to retiring, I thought, well, it might be worth trying to jot it all down because I've always quite enjoyed writing. And I have three boys and it's always very difficult to explain to your children what you do because unless like you guys, where you have this sort of burning interest in aviation, it's very difficult for people to understand when you say, oh, I used to fly Harriers and did this, that and the other, or flew Falcon 20s and did this. And they sort of look at you vacantly because they haven't got any touchstone. They can't really understand it. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of spurred me into thinking, well, perhaps I'll just write a few thought things down about what I've done and help them try and understand how I spent my life. Well, what an absolutely fantastic career Chris Burwell has had and uh, just a joy to speak to him, one of the rare occasions where he's got more takeoffs than landings, um, thanks to his ejection, but there you go. It, it, honestly, he's, like you say, he's just so fantastic and I think he's one of these people that was just made to fly, wasn't he? You can hear it in his voice, the way that he speaks about the aircraft, the way he speaks about flight. And the way that he just remembers every small detail still after all these years is an absolute icon, such a legend. I love him. Absolutely. Well, I mean, what can I say? Tempest, Fugit and all that. But next week, it's the last one of the series. What happened there? Oh, my gosh. They have flown by, Jamie. Did you like what I did there? I did. Very, very canny. Should be on the stage, <laughs> sweeping it. But thank you. Yeah, I was going to say, selling programmes. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's absolutely Zoom by, hasn't it? I've just loved every second of it. But please remember, if you want to leave us a review, we would love to get a review from you. All you need to do is go to where you get your podcast from normally. Go to the platform and please leave us a review because it just means that we can do Series 5 then. And of course, you can email us as well and tell us whatever you like. Mavgeeks at BFBS. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Mavgeeks at bfbs.com. Cool. Until next week, the final one of this series. Goodbye. Bye-bye.